welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at a great year in the movies, which is every year. Uh, and on our very first season, we're talking about the year 1994. I'm Josh Bell, joined by... My name is Jason Harris. Josh over there has been a film critic for over a decade. I am a comedian and filmmaker and a man about town. Man about town. That's an important qualification. <laughs> That we have to mention in every episode. Anyone can be a podcaster at this point in time. Man About Town's enough of a credit. That uh, is true, as uh, as proved by uh, our producer, Mr. David Rosen, who's here as well. And uh, on this episode, I just want to say Dave also has a movie podcast. That's why we thought he would be a great producer called Piecing It Together, and uh, and we'll see if he holds up. Which <laughs> both of you guys have been on, so uh, this is going to be fun. Yes, we have. So we sort of know what we're doing. Uh, and in this episode, we are discussing the number one movie at the box office in 1994, which is Disney's The Lion King. So, yes. Yeah, so what we're going to do is we're breaking each season down, each year down by 12 different categories. Uh, so we're doing biggest box office. We're doing, you know, best picture winner. We're doing ones that are already formed for us. And then we're going to each have our own picks throughout the season and cult classics that we agree on. And uh, Josh, I, I think we should let him know you and I have been friends for uh, over two decades. We have. When was our, we had our friendversary, wasn't it? Well, didn't we have that recently or last year or something? Uh, we, I think it'll be. We were going to go to In-N-Out? We should do that. It'll be 25 years in 2021. <laughs> okay. I used to copy Josh's math homework in uh, high school. We've been friends ever since. And uh, we've been. We've, we write together sometimes, we do some projects together, and uh, and we talk on the phone a lot still. That is true. And we made make a podcast together. And we love movies. So uh, why is 1994 an awesome movie year? Let's, uh, let's dig into the, the biggest box office hit of that year in America, but not North America. Did you know that? It is North, in North America as well, as well as in the world, I believe. I thought Forrest Gump beat it in North America. No, no. I mean, at least not according to what I looked up. Maybe we should have. Uh, I thought I researched this properly, that it was it was both the number one movie at the box office in North America and in the world. Don't look at me, Jason. I don't have facts. Yeah. All right. We'll leave. We'll leave it uh, uh, you know, up to Josh. We'll verify this. the facts later. Um, so I'm pretty sure it was the number one movie at the box office. It made four hundred and twenty two million dollars in North America. $968 million worldwide. It was the highest grossing film of 1994, both in North America and worldwide, uh, and holds a bunch of records still. Uh, I think it's the 35th highest grossing movie of all time, uh, as well as uh, the seventh highest grossing animated film of all time. So it was very, very popular and was the number one movie at the box office in 1994. Uh, Award-wise, it was nominated for uh, five Oscars, or four Oscars, sorry. Uh, it won the Oscar for Best Score, for Best Original Score for Hans Zimmer, uh, as well as the Oscar for Best Original Song for Can You Feel the Love Tonight by Elton John and Tim Rice. And it was three of the five nominees for that category at the Oscars. Uh, the Circle of Life and Hakuna Matata were also nominated for Best Original Song, won the Golden Globe, for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy, as well as Best Original Score. Uh, and because the Best Animated Feature Oscar was not around at the time, uh, notable that it also won the Annie Award, which still exists as an animation industry award uh, for Best Animated Feature. So very highly acclaimed, even at the time. And when The Lion King uh, first hit, it was at, at 
all told uh, the second highest grossing film of all time when it was all said and done back then. Right. So. Back then, which of course it's, it slid down, but you know, that's inflation really yeah. is the, the factor for all that stuff. And uh, a, a couple of other, uh, just to show you how uh, all encompassing this film was it uh, on its first day of VHS release, it sold 4.5 million copies, 4.5 million wow. units. Yeah. Sold 30 million VHS tapes, the biggest of all time. Did you have one? Uh, I did not. I I did not have a, a Lion King VHS. Did you? Uh, I like not personally, but my family did. And the first time I saw this movie was on VHS. I agree. Mine was too. Mine. You. So you saw it with your family. Uh, I, I actually didn't. This is. I, I never saw the Lion King. I didn't see the Lion King probably until like two thousand five or something like that when I was an adult. But I watched the VHS that my family had. And I feel similarly, I feel like I was on a trip to Hawaii with my brother. We were visiting my cousins and we watched a ton of movies. This was like 1996. And that was the first time I watched The Lion King. But I just have memories of bits and pieces like permeating our, you know, teenage years. And right, like right. So. I think that's true. It was one of those movies that, I mean, as we're saying, it was so popular and so ubiquitous that you couldn't avoid it. But I feel like for me... In 1994, I was uh, 14 or 15, and I was definitely in the phase of like, that stuff's for kids, and I would not have wanted to see it, and that was why I didn't end up seeing it until I was an adult. Yeah, I don't, I I think I just, I just didn't, I wasn't against animated movies, I just didn't, this one just didn't have any uh, real... I didn't relate to a little lion who was had to be king of the of the pride, and you know that <laughs> right. no one just didn't. Uh, no, it just didn't for resonate me. for you. Yeah, so. Fair enough. So a few uh, a few contemporary reviews. It was very well reviewed uh, at the time, uh, highly acclaimed. Uh, although it's interesting to read some of these because I think now this movie is regarded as one of the best Disney movies of all time, if not in some cases from some people one of the best movies of all time. And some of the positive reviews from the time that I was looking at were a little measured. Um, so Roger Ebert said, uh, although the movie may be frightening and depressing to the very young, I think it's positive that The Lion King deals with real issues. By processing life's realities and stories, children can prepare themselves for more difficult lessons later on. The saga of Simba, which in its deeply buried origins owes something to Greek tragedy and certainly to Hamlet, which is very true. Uh, is a learning experience as well as an entertainment. So uh, he was concerned that it was maybe not appropriate for children. I think a lot of people were because, you know, he uh, there was a brother killing a brother, you know, and, right. and Simba had to uh, eventually kill, uh, get his revenge kill on uh, Scar, you know, his uncle. So yes. um, I think so. I also read that Jeffrey Katzenberg, like, because this story had been developing since like 1988. Yeah. He threw a lot of like, I, I don't know how much of his life was in there. I don't think he ever had to kill his uncle or anything, but <laughs> I would hope but, not. But just stuff like the dealing with death and stuff he had to deal with in childhood, like he he personalized that into the uh into the film as well. And right. Yeah. And it is dark at times. Um so Janet Maslin in the New York Times says, uh, taking its place in the great arc of neo-Disney classics that began with The Little Mermaid, The Lion King is as visually enchanting as its pedigree suggests but it also departs from the spontaneity of its predecessors and reveals more calculation. More so than the exuberant movie miracles that came before it, the latest animated juggernaut has the feeling of a clever, predictable product. 
which I I think is a common complaint about Disney movies now, but I was a little surprised to see that complaint about this movie in 1994. Yeah, especially when you consider uh, that this was the first Disney movie that wasn't based on anything. Right. You know, this is the first original story of a Disney movie that they had ever concocted. You right. Know? So right. you would think they'd get a little more uh, leeway with that. So Yeah. I mean, although as, as we're talking Hamlet, about, and as Ebert right. points out, there's many obvious influences, especially sure. Hamlet, uh, as well as, you know, Greek tragedy and Bible stories and stuff like that. Um, so my last review quote here I have is from Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly, who said, The Lion King, more than any of the recent wave of Disney animated features, has the resonance to stand not just as a terrific cartoon, but as an emotionally pungent movie. So he felt a little more emotionally engaged in this movie. And I think that is, for people who really love it, is what they, it was what they really get swept up in, is that there's there's a lot of emotion. You know, people, did you cry? No, I didn't cry. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't love this movie. So yeah. You know, so, All um, right. Um, and, uh, and it did get uh, an A plus cinema score at the time from audiences, which is a rare thing uh, for cinema score, the right. audience polling service, which is based here in Las Vegas. It was a monster. It had a billion dollars in merchandise sales by Christmas of 94. Yeah. And, uh, and that soundtrack is the only soundtrack oh, ever to yeah, go the soundtrack. Uh, it went uh, uh, ten million di- diamonds. Diamond. Oh yeah, yeah. that doesn't even happen. For, yeah, anything that's the anymore. first, the first one ever that did that. So. Yeah. So this was a very, very popular movie. And let's take a little break. And when we come back, we'll talk about our general thoughts on the Lion King. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. On this first episode of our 1994 season, we're talking about the number one movie at the box office, The Lion King, and uh, we're getting into our general thoughts on the movie. So you didn't like it? Nah, I was kind of <laughs> bored. I mean, it, it's literally like almost structured as like half hour, half hour, half hour. Right. right? It's, it's kind of episodic in a way. Yeah. yeah. So the first half hour is, you know, we meet Simba and Mufasa and he's going to be the king and he just can't wait to be king. Yes. The music's still very catchy. It's very catchy. Yeah. Although I was, I was struck again watching this movie. There's not that much of it. The music. There's like five songs in the whole movie. I mean, I guess like, so that opening sequence, uh, the circle of life. Yeah. That's the opening song, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and you're, you're, you know, kind of over the, the plains of Africa and you see all these like animals running in these bright colors and it's like it, that's sweeping and, uh, that catches you almost takes your breath away right away. So I don't think it's the amount of music. It's the way that the music was placed and where it was placed. Like Hakuna Matata happens, you know, after Simba has to run away when, scar his uncle convinces him that simba was at fault for his father's death and everything and so you kind of are at this low and then you're right into the bop 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 bright colors again right um so it's kind of interesting in that regard but yeah the first the first third is young simba learning about life and he's going to be king the second third is uh scar has you know kind of taken over and simba is like living life you know they literally in hakuna matata trend uh you know, do a transition from kid Simba to adult Simba. Right. Which I thought was a nice way to do things. Yeah. Um, although, yeah, the structurally, I feel like this movie is, is kind of awkward. It struck me again that like young Simba is like half the movie, even though I think the 
the, you know, like credit wise, it's always, oh, Simba played by Matthew Broderick. Oh, and young Simba, but young Simba, Jonathan Taylor, Jonathan Thomas. Taylor Thomas. Yes. Yeah. Um, but young Simba is like half the movie. Right. Um, well, he's a Matthew Broderick was a much bigger star. Right. Know, so. Right. I mean, but even they do it with Nala too, who's, you know, voice actors are not particularly like superstars or anything like that. Um, so I, I don't know, but I, I agree with you that it, it's like the structure is a little, it is a little right. awkward. And that last third is Simba has to come back and take, take back the pride, you know, right. the scar and has made a deal with the hyenas and the whole pride land is, has gone to hell. So, yeah. And that I thought was a little rushed because they take so much time. Again, it's like half the movie with young Simba. He finally grows up. And, you know, then there's still more time waiting for Nala to come find him and convince him to go back. And when we finally get his return, um, the confrontation with Scar is really, yeah, is really rushed. And I don't know if maybe part of that is a concern about, well, they're not going to show lots of violence in this in this animated kids movie. Um, But I felt dissatisfied dramatically with that confrontation that's been building, obviously, for the whole movie. I mean, right away, you know. Scar is evil. He hates Simba. Uh, he wants to take over. And so you want to see him defeated from the very beginning. And yet his defeat feels very anticlimactic. I guess. I think it would have been awesome if Scar had won and the whole Pride <laughs> well, Land. That is certainly not. Had gone into some Mad Max future yes, or not. Yes, <laughs> that would have been interesting. And I feel like I have a tendency to sympathize with the villains in all these, in these Disney movies, although Scar is harder to sympathize with. But... Um, yeah, I mean, he's, I will say, he's a f- much better character than Simba. Simba is a boring character. Yeah, and he just, like, kind of is like, oh, I guess everything is his fault, and he never does. He's like, yeah, I guess it is my fault, and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. you know. And he's always, re- like, he's very reactive. When he does that, he's like, okay, it's my fault. And then when, even when he comes back, it's yeah. Nala and his mother saying, you have to take over. He's like, okay, right. I guess I'll take over and beat Scar. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. He's not a proactive, uh, uh, you know, uh, main character, protagonist right. right there. So he doesn't make uh, active decisions and everything like that. But what about, uh, you know, watching it now, you know, because Timon and Pumbaa were, like, such huge characters. Yeah. Like, what did you think of them now? I liked Simone and Pumbaa. And what I liked about them especially is how, I, and I was going to ask you about this because, you know, your your grandfather has the the connection to the, the Borscht Belt comedy. Yeah, my, my grandfather was a comedian for 60 years and and, uh, and made his bones in the Catskills. Yeah. Van and, Harris. Van Harris. And so yeah. I thought of Van Harris as I was watching Timon and Pumbaa because Nathan Lane especially is obviously doing some straight up Borscht Belt stuff in this movie and the terrible like puns. I loved it. That was my favorite part watching this again. I see. And I didn't. I thought like he was just eating scenery and, you know, and I like Nathan Lane actually as a Broadway actor. And, uh, you know, the two of those guys, him and Ernie Sambello, who played uh, Pumbaa, they they have that history together on Broadway and everything. Yeah. But I I don't know. I think it would have been like one of those less is more type things. Yeah. So I could use the little less of of them i don't know i would and you know just so everyone knows my daughter is five and i watched this with her and uh she she was up and dancing and singing okay. the whole thing so it holds up from from that level for for kids right now yeah. and you know a lot of the stuff she watches is cgi yeah now so this was cool that like a hand-drawn thing even though they did do some kind of yeah there's some cgi this. enhancement on this movie yeah 
But uh, yeah, I I wasn't really. I don't know if I like other than Mufasa, like what character I really liked. In this yeah. Thing, so I, I did like Timon and Pumbaa in this movie. And especially because Simba is so boring that once we got to them, I thought, OK, now here's a little bit of of life to this film. Now, uh, something to to grab me more and entertain me more. Um, I just been watching also the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, the second season where they spend a lot of time in the Catskills and you see the comedy there. And it's Timon and Pumbaa, one of the acts, like a variety. Act. No, but they could be. That is the point is yeah. I could absolutely see that, that Nathan Lane and Ernie Sabella duo being in the Catskills in the 1950s. So I, I enjoyed that. And I especially enjoyed it in contrast because you're seeing them and they're having, they're got their interplay and then you get stuck in the, the drippy love song between Nala and uh, and Simba, the can you feel the love tonight? You know what I was thinking while I was watching the movie about every song that was in the movie. Yeah, that Elton John sang. Like I like the Elton John versions better of all those songs. You right, know, which is a which is a credit to you know the Rocket Band, right? Right, right. So, credit to him, not yeah. so much to. I mean, the songs they they're good. Like they are catchy. Like you were saying. I mean, some of them are, I think are borderline like annoyingly catchy. You know, not in a yeah, fun cheaply, way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did was was your daughter? Was she singing Hakuna Matata for like five days after this? Uh, I mean, she was up and dancing to it. I mean, I, I think you know, just can't wait to be king. May, might be the best of the bunch. That one's really catchy. And, yeah, and fun. But uh, yeah, no, I I I definitely uh, man, the strength of that music. We all saw what it did. It like it's the most successful Broadway show of all time now. You right, know, right. So. Yeah, the music is is definitely memorable. I think sometimes you watch these old Disney movies and you realize, okay, there's this one song that everyone knows that was really good. And then there's all these other ones that just don't match up to it. And this one, I think pretty much every one of these songs was like a massive sensation. I think that's part of it. Like I remember once there was this like quote from Stanley Donnan, you know, the the legendary director yeah. singing in the rain and everything. And uh, he said a movie is like, five really good scenes with the, the rest of it built around it, you know? So that's a, that's a Howard Hawks quote. I think three, three good scenes, no bad, three great scenes, no bad ones. So, well then it's both of them. So okay. I bet you, I think Donnan said five. Okay. I almost remembered on actors to do, right. but either way, I feel like the music, you know, is so strong in the lion King that yeah. it kind of masks some of the weaknesses that, you know, the film has. Right. Not. Yeah. I think that that is true. And that you remember that music. And that was why part of why I think I was a little surprised to realize they're just, they're only, there's only these five really well-known songs in this movie and no other ones. Well, and one of them's not even like that song. Be prepared is like, that's what? true. Yeah. That's maybe the weakest of the bunch. Yeah. And Jeremy Irons is, I mean, Jeremy Irons is great, obviously, but he's not really a singer. Yeah. So that one just is like eh, a good throwaway or whatever. Right. So. Yeah. But other than that, the rest of those songs are all huge, huge songs. And I think I was expecting or maybe thought I remembered more songs like Be Prepared, where it was like, oh, here was this other one that just kind of was there. But really, it's just all these big numbers. Well, in the jungle, you know, the... the oh, yeah, they, the, they briefly sing that. But that's not an original song. No, I know. But if you're saying like other songs... In right. The, I mean, they uh, sing a little snippet of that. And the bird, uh, what's his name? Zazu. Zazu sings a couple of snippets of other things. But in terms of, of full-on musical numbers, there's only there's only those few. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that is is what's held up really well from this movie and that people still, you know, you go to an Elton John concert and he's going to sing Can You Feel the Love Tonight? 
uh, just as one of his big hits, really, even separate from this film. Yeah, we we didn't even mention Circle of Life yet, which is the big closing. Right, the, the, that's the the opener. That's um, the opener. That's and the opener. Can you feel yes. the love tonight? Is the closing. as the closing credits when yeah. you hear Elton John sing it, as, gotcha. which is like, like you said, is a better version than the one that's in the main part of the movie, which is a duet, right? And has different little, lyrics. Uh, their little love song, yeah, you know, Lady in the Tramp style situation. There, right? So. Yeah, that's really just. Uh, not great. Hey, I was going to ask uh, you, to, yes. well, first of all, what do you think of the animation now? I, I think the animation holds up. That That's another thing. And and again, because the first time I, and the only previous time I had seen this was on VHS, uh, which is not obviously the ideal way to watch a movie. Um, I was struck more this time watching it on DVD on a larger screen, um, how gorgeous it looks. And that whatever they did, you know, the computer animation stuff, a lot of times you watch old computer animation, especially integrated with hand-drawn animation, it looks really awkward. But I thought it all fit together seamlessly. The character design is impressive that it looks good. I'm sure if I had seen this in a theater, I would have been even more impressed with the animation. So I, I liked that. Um, and, and like you were talking about that opening, that it, it feels very grandiose uh, that draws you in. And I think that was even maybe part of the reason that I felt like the conclusion was anticlimactic because it didn't live up to the big, like epic sweep of some of the earlier sequences. I agree with that. And I, you know, one thing I was thinking with the animation, because I, I was so taken at the beginning and then it just kind of petered off for me. Yeah. Is that because I think this uh, movie was so ubiquitous because it was so permeated throughout our lives and pop culture. And we've seen these huge Broadway productions and, you know, sequels here and, you know, the, the TV, it, like it almost lessened the impact of the anime. Like when I was watching it this time, I'm like, yeah, it's all right. But I think it's just that it it's oversaturated, um, you know, that kind of style and everything based yeah. on the original and whatnot. Right. That's true. And I think you maybe don't realize how impressive it, it actually was at the time. And I think it was one of the first animated movies to incorporate computer animation. One of the other things in the Ebert review that I, I didn't, I didn't note down, but that I noticed while I was looking at it was he, he kind of scoffs at the idea of computer animation. And it says something like, as if a computer could make a movie, <laughs> which of course was a very not prescient thing for Roger Ebert to say in 1994. But I think there was some skepticism about whether computer animation could really uh, work. Well, as a screenwriter, that worries me because that's where <laughs> we're at now is if a computer could write a script because they're also wooden right now, you know, AI scripts. And right, but, right. And of course, I mean, computer animation is not a computer making a movie. It's, right, it's, it's human, human filmmakers movie. using the computer as a tool to make a movie. Uh, that is true. Yeah. So. What about, uh, I don't, I mean, I looked at the credits and there's like 30 people on the story here, which is kind of Pixar-y, you know, ahead yeah. of the Pixar time. I yeah. thought that was interesting. But I don't really know much about the directors, do you? Uh, I don't either. And maybe I should have looked them up more. I don't think they're necessarily known as the biggest Disney directors. I think they might've worked on Oliver and company. No, the guy who originally directed Oliver and maybe they worked on him, but yeah. the guy who originally directed Oliver and company, whose name I do not know. Nothing. You don't have internet. Nope. Wait, you know, it's, it's <laughs> we, could, we could have looked these you things really up beforehand. Up, like so yeah. fast. Mm. Now I know why we pay you the big bucks, Dave. Uh, he was originally attached to direct this, and then I think like he didn't want it as a okay. musical or something. Oh, okay. George Scribner. Director, <laughs> director of Oliver and Company. That's why you get the money, big man. There you yeah. go. Thank you, Dave. So 
Yeah, I mean, you know, that that's the only other thing I found like really interesting in researching this movie was uh the controversies that came out of it. Did yes, you about and I was gonna I I mean I'm not sure what you were gonna talk about, but I was gonna mention the the sex uh yeah, thing. And guy. one thing that I remember as a teenager, I had not watched the movie like from beginning to end and did not care to, but I remember going through trying to find the moment where sex appears on the screen and trying to pause it on the videotape to see that. Because, of course, at 15 or whatever, I did not care about, you know, animated lions. I did, however, care about the word sex appearing on screen. <laughs> did you find it? I think so. And watching it again this time, I was trying to look out for it and I didn't I didn't pause it. But I remembered the moment that Simba kind of flops down and there's some yeah. dust that goes up in the air and it supposedly forms that word. Um, but yeah, it's such a silly thing, but it was, it was a big thing at the time. Right. One of the animators says it's SFX special for special effects. effects. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, which I believe cause they throw in Easter eggs like that. I do like that. Wasn't there a Disney movie where uh, there was like a penis drawn into. Uh, well, there's um, I remember, I think this was probably around the same time as in my juvenile imagination that it wasn't in the movie, but on the, the VHS cover of the little mermaid, there's like the, the King's castle in the background. And one of the spires looks very much like a penis. And I think that was, what it was. I mean, a lot of castle spires look penile. Exactly. That's very true. That's very true. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I definitely thought, and as I was watching the movie this time, I was anticipating that, that sex moment, because that was what I remembered from, from being a teenager and wanting to see. I thought that was, that's a fun controversy. There are some really weird ones that came out of this. I don't know if you read about them. They were, some people thought that the hyenas and the hyenas being bad guys and encroaching on, the Pride's Land was an mm, anti-immigrant yeah, story. Yeah, and, I can see that. And uh, and Scar became a fascist dictator. Uh, right. I mean, that's not like he gets defeated. So if Scar is a fascist dictator, I feel like that's a totally so, legit allegory for this movie to have. I think we're looking far too into it when we get to that point. You know, yeah. So. Um, but on the other hand, you know, in, in terms of the hyenas, um, uh, I did when I when I watched this the uh, last week or whatever it was, I, I did write on Letterboxd that this movie was blatant anti-hyena propaganda. <laughs> and, um, you know, Disney has a history of these kind of secondary animal characters being slightly uh, racist. I guess because it's because the hyenas are voiced by Whoopi Goldberg, black woman. Right. Cheech from Cheech and Chong. Yes. Uh, Latino man. Yeah. And uh, who's the third? Oh, one? the third one is Jim Cummings, who is a veteran uh, uh, voice actor. He's right in some trouble right now. Yes. So. But he is a white dude yeah. um, and voiced a million different characters in various Disney productions. Right. But it was originally supposed, I think uh, Nathan Lane and Ernie Sabello read for that. And uh-huh. then, like the uh, chemistry was so good that they just moved him over to Timon and Pumbaa and everybody. So. Right. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I can, I can sort of see how you could read that into this. I think it's less obvious than, than something like Dumbo, like the crows in Dumbo. Sure, definitely. Where that's clearly based on racial stereotypes. Yeah. Um, but I could see this story being that kind of allegory. I can definitely see that allegory there with, with Scar. I mean, he is a fascist dictator. He, he, mounts a coup he kills the leader he takes over he tells everyone what to do i mean that's pretty much the definition of it but josh you would have been my favorite controversy that i read about and now that i know how you reviewed it was there were uh, hyena biologists did you read about this (laughs) i did not a hyena biologist or maybe a group of them sued the makers of the lion king for defamation of character for hyenas that is nuts 
That is a little crazy. And I'm wondering if, you know, these, these uh, biologists uh, had uh, direct uh, input from the hyenas. Right. I don't see how you can do that on behalf of of animals, but uh, it really does malign hyenas who I'm sure are no worse than lions in real life. They probably just laughed about it. Oh, hyenas and all. You've been, you've been holding that in your pocket (laughs) since we started. Oh, that's a, that's a, you know, callback to Van Harris. Yes. 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 When a joke bombs, you say, that's funny. My hyena like that. (laughs) Is that, is that something he, a little nice, nice little street callback. Right. That's, uh, that's good. Um, so should we talk about the cast a little more? The voice cast? Um, what did we think? Uh, like I, I said, him. Jeremy Irons is a yeah. great villain. Yeah, Jeremy Irons, James Earl Jones is Mufasa. And, you know, we mentioned Nathan Lehner and Sabello. We mentioned both Roderick and JTT. So the women are kind of get lost in this thing. I they guess. do. That's true. That's not surprising for a Disney movie. Although this did follow on The Little Mermaid, which had a female main character. You know, one other character we should talk about is Rafiki, Rafifi, Rafiki, Rafiki, yeah. the uh, the shaman, uh, some type of uh, monkeyish character. Yeah, you could. He he might be a slightly questionable uh, ethnic racial uh, character there right. as well. That was Robert Guillaume, right? Yeah, yeah. And but like his character, he's supposed to be like you know a future predictor of some type, or right? Not that he just kind of like. He's there at the beginning. He holds Simba up and then you don't see him for like an hour. And then he like finds, you know, dust. dust and yes. he's like, ah, oh, Simba's alive. I guess I'll go speak to him now. <laughs> like, right. Like all these years he would have never attempted to. He or found the dust. Yeah. Clues, you know. And then he has that huge scene where he helps convince Simba to come back. You know, right. Right. Like That's that. true. He's sort of the, he's a bit of the, like, you know, the magical Negro stereotype, you could say. Uh, if you're looking for that. I don't think this movie really is, is, is doing that to any degree that's uh, offensive, but I, I definitely think you could yeah. see that uh, in the history. And, of this and let me just clarify right yeah. now. Josh is not saying magical Negro as Josh. Josh is saying that that has been a trope as movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Year. Yeah. That's a, that's a common yeah. complaint about uh, right. African-American characters who, you know, exist only to help the white uh, hero yeah. on his journey. Like, Legend of Bagger Vance. Right? Yes, yes. Sometimes they're literally magical, and sometimes they're just like a person who's there to say the right things to get the hero back on on their path. And I mean, obviously, there's no you know this whole thing takes place in Africa, and there's no race to these animal characters. But Simba is voiced voiced by two white guys. Yes, but in the new one, he'll be voiced uh, the John Favreau remake, remake of yes. uh, live action CGI. It's not live mix. action. Yeah, it's CGI. Well, whatever. So, they call it uh, live action, but there's no actual live yeah, action. Yeah, it's it. Donald Glover and yeah. uh, James Earl Jones will be repri- reprising his role as Mufasa. And, yeah. You know, and uh, Timon and Pumbaa or Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen. So, yeah. Whatever. So, and uh, you know, that's what I got. I, I, think the, I think this bodes well. This is a movie that can be remade with the new technology and uh, could do could be a cool movie. Yeah. All right. On that note, let's take a little break and we'll come back and talk about the legacy of The Lion King. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this first episode of our 1994 season, we're talking about the biggest box office hit of the year, Disney's The Lion King. 
uh, and we're getting into the legacy of this movie. And uh, to get back to what you said about the possibility of it being remade, I completely disagree with you about the upcoming remake. I think it's a horrible idea. And I think that remaking this movie in a super hyper-realistic style is just going to rob it of its charm and its power. But we haven't seen that movie, so maybe we should reserve judgment. But it is a big part of the legacy, obviously. I mean, there's a massive anticipation for that movie, which comes out uh, July 19th. I mean, The Lion King has been, as far as legacy, it's been with us since 1994, nonstop, yes. since the movie came out. Yes. There has been no break. I mean, the the Broadway play is still, the show is still playing, yes. right? Yeah. That's insane. That's the highest grossing uh, play or musical ever on Broadway. Yeah. Well, you know, one best musical. Like, yeah. it's just, uh, that was Julie Taymor, you know? And like, right. Just uh, insanity right there. So, yeah. um, or it's the third longest running show on Broadway. I mean, so. either way, it is obviously massively successful. And and I mean, I feel like in certain ways, maybe even eclipsed as hugely successful as the movie was, the, the stage show has almost eclipsed its success. Yeah. in because it's been going for so long, I think for a lot of people who maybe weren't born in 1994, um, their first exposure to The Lion King as kids might have been that stage production, um, which I think is maybe even better than the movie. I would think so because, you know, when we're talking about these like sweeping scenes and these colors and music, like theater is so visceral and immediate that, you know, um, it can just have such a, a bigger impact in, a, in something like this, you yeah. know? Uh, you know, some of the other movies we're talking about, like Clerks or something like that this season, it wouldn't have been as effective, you know, on you stage. Want to see or Clerks the Broadway musical. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Kevin. I, he probably did, wasn't he? For Clerks Three, talking about doing it as a stage. Clerks player did have a lot of great songs, so you know, that <laughs> so, that's true. There you go. So we can get into that in our Clerks, um, Clerks episode. Yeah, but I mean, you know, what as far as influence, like, uh, I don't. I mean, there were a lot of. I don't necessarily want to say imitators, but you yeah, know, a lot of movies were definitely took took pieces of it but i don't think you know really kind of were able to you know matriculate the ball down the field and and move it ahead based on what we've seen with this yeah yeah i mean there's i think the legacy is in part it's just like like you were saying the lion king itself being inescapable we had this broadway production there's all these there's like straight to video sequels which i haven't seen any of those i don't know if you've watched any with your daughter no i have not yeah but i mean those were at the time when disney was really focused on those straight to video sequels and spin-offs yeah. they were big business the lion so king more. one and a half and yeah. stuff like that um so uh and then of course this upcoming uh remake timon and pumbaa cartoon from yes know, yeah know, there's like that was a tv show for right. years and just uh, it's it was a uh, massive monster factory of uh, income and ancillary revenue streams. Right, right. Which of course I think, especially those spinoffs and the further story, you know, also can dilute the power of the the initial movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then also its influence on on other non Lion King productions. I mean, this was a massive hit for Disney. It was a big part of that Disney animation renaissance. And I think right. movies that came after, even now, even now when Disney, everything that they do is a ju giant juggernaut, I think they still look back to this movie as an example of how to do things right. I think it might've had more of an effect on the Pixar films. Yeah. You know, based, based on how they develop and, you know, uh, large groups and really kind of build stories out and, you know, 
um, you know, it's never one person building a story. It's a, it's a whole think tank building a story. And then I also think, you know, if you look at those Pixar films, the way that music is placed, you know, it's really uh, in that old Broadway style of like, how can we make this the most emotionally resonant, you know, which the Lion King, I give it credit for that did do, did do well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I was saying, uh, I think for the people who love this movie, that has, it has a lot of emotional power and people uh, our age or maybe a little younger who saw it as kids really remember how much it, it touched them you know, at that age. And they, they carry that nostalgia forward. Yeah. Um, Meh. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe Scarlett will grow up, uh, loving the Lion King and she'll have a stronger attachment to it. Yeah. It was fun. Scarlett's my daughter. It was fun to watch her dance and enjoy the film. And I'm glad I got to watch it with her. Uh, we were talking about if we were going to, uh, rank this, give it a, a star rating of sorts. We're going to, we're going to rate it on the most popular toy of the year. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, you know, very important. Figures. Yes, I'll give it a two and a half Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and that's two and a half out of five. Yeah, okay, yeah, right down the middle. Okay, so. I would, I would give it three out of five uh, Power Rangers. I think I liked it a little more than you did, but it definitely is something where I don't feel like I'm on the bandwagon with the people who just really love this movie. And again, there, there are some people who will say that this is one of the greatest movies of all time. It was in 2016 added to the National Film Registry. Uh, by the United States Congress, which is this kind of official record of important films uh, in the U.S. And the one other thing I wanted to say about its legacy is that I think it uh, really contributed to the idea that Disney animated movies are like prestige, award-worthy productions. They're not just these things for kids. That even though Beauty and the Beast, which came before this, was the one Disney movie nominated for Best Picture, I think this is a movie that really established the idea that these Disney animated movies are Oscar contenders and, you know, among the best movies of a given year. Yeah. This, you know, retroactively you would, you would, there would probably be nothing that would ever come close to touching this. If there was a best animated feature of that year. You know? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and at that time there weren't as many animated feature films being produced in a given year. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this is, this is just, it's a juggernaut. But this is what's fun about uh, awesome movie year. This is our first episode. And when you, you know, when you hear The Lion King, you think of this classic and everybody loves it. And now we get to go back and watch it and, uh, and tear it apart. We don't love it. <laughs> <laughs> so that is The Lion King, the top grossing film in North America and worldwide of 1994. Uh, and what do we have coming up for our next episode, Jason? So next we are going to do a uh, first feature episode, which is exciting uh we're taking a director that we both love or respect and we're going to break down their first feature and there were a lot in 1994 but the one we chose to do is kevin smith's clerks so tune in for that including clerks the musical thanks for listening right. to awesome movie year thanks to our producer david rosen and you can find us on social on all the social medias Facebook, oh, yes. instagram and twitter at awesome movie year and so, uh, find Jason on the socials at Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on on any of them. You can find me on Twitter at Signal Bleed and on Facebook at Josh Bell Hates Everything. Cool. And Dave has the Piecing It Together podcast. And you can find us on Twitter at Piecing Pod and our website PiecingPod.com and Piecing Pod on a whole bunch of other sites too. <laughs> Tune in next time for Clerks. This has been awesome movie year. 
Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west. 